You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it as best we can from week to week. Uh, despite the chickens. <laughs> despite the chickens. Despite my voice. Um, the, uh, we are recording this one on the same day as we recorded last week's, as you can probably tell. Uh, and, yeah. And I've been talking too much between episodes because my voice is getting lower and lower and lower. So... Uh, yeah. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, everyone out there, I'm not destroying your ear pods. Uh, it, it's got this nice um, um, bass quality to it right now that it normally doesn't have. Yeah. <laughs> if this is your first episode and you really like the way my voice sounds, I got bad news for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we've had problems with me sounding that way with some of our recordings and you've had to fix that so i don't oh, yeah. know what's up with the voices like all dropping two or three octaves it's yeah been... yeah the 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 uh couple of weeks ago we uh this is all stuff that you would not hear on the on the <laughs> the, the the receiving end of the podcast but on the back end emily's uh garage band glitched so it slowed her down and and pitch shifted her way down and uh so it was it it sounded really funny that there's, there's no tricks this week. I do really sound like, like terrible. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it probably sounds worse in your head than it does on this end. So probably so. And, and, and just knowing the amount of extra effort I'm having to the, the extra force I'm having to put behind my lungs to actually get sound to come out of my mouth right now probably just makes it sound worse to me in general. So yeah. Uh, that being said, uh, I am going to uh, probably be just muting my mic like last week, uh, so I'm not interrupting you with coughing and things. Um, but that being said, uh, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and get to, uh, to some Bible stuff, and okay. we'll, we'll see what happens. All right, well, we're still in First Kings chapter 1. Uh, Solomon has been put on the throne. Uh, Adonia has been having this big feast. The, during the feast, the shofar has blown. Joab's like, oh, no, we're in trouble. Uh, and shortly after that, Jonathan, the son of Abathar, he arrives, and he tells uh, Adonia that, hey, Things are not going well. Your dad's still alive, and Solomon's been appointed king. And we ended last week, we were talking about the fact that for the short time in history within Israel, there are two kings. We have David and Solomon both alive with equal power, equal reigning. You know, they, they, there is no distinction between the two in function at this point in time. But it's really interesting because we've already been talking about how so much of what's going on with Solomon is foreshadowing of what's going to occur when Jesus takes the throne. And so we're going to talk about um, Solomon probably a lot by the time we get to the Gospels, because there is a lot of illustration. And one of the reasons why we need to, to study these Old Testament passages is because they explain so much of what Paul is saying. You know, Paul writes this really deep theology. Peter when his letters and Hebrews and we've got these these wonderful little prescriptives that we really don't understand what they mean if we don't have the descriptives to go with them. So the the stories within the Old Testament give us an idea of what's going to play out but on a bigger more profound universal level and if we don't heed the stories like Paul told us to we're not going to understand the theology he presents. And so, um, you know, one of the first things that really stands out to me in the story is David is not ashamed to bow to his son. He has no sense of humiliation. This does not violate his pride, his personhood. It does not diminish him in any way, shape, or form to actually 
bow to his son and acknowledge that his son is king. And the, um, the thing is, what we need to pay attention to on the wording of this is Solomon is specifically, we're told that he is king. Not that he will be king when David dies, but that he is king at this moment. And as I was reading through this, I was reminded of Psalm 110. That's a butterfly on my head. Uh, The Lord says to my Lord, (laughs) sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Now, remember Solomon, uh, part of what was going to make his reign so important was the fact that um, the enemies would be put to rest. It's going to be a time of peace. This was what was going to enable him to actually be able to build the temple. David was not allowed to build the temple because he was a man of war, and there was been so much blood shed during his lifetime. That was in uh, one of the passages we read in Chronicles. This butterfly is not leaving me. I've tried to put it down a couple of times now. Um, now, we know that Psalms 110 is a messianic psalm. And for everyone uh, not on the YouTube, Emily is recording. Well, even if you're watching YouTube, it's kind of hard to tell. She is recording on her front porch. Uh, we haven't yeah. mentioned that. So that's why she keeps getting chickens and bugs and better for all kinds of animal noises. I had to choose either a mother and sister who were disgruntled because they couldn't continue to watch their TV shows and had to be silent while they listened to this or critters. So I'll take the critters any day Um, because the critters will, the the frustration with them will end when we stop recording. Not so much with family. (laughs) So anyhow, uh, Psalms 110, it's a messianic Psalm. Everybody knows this. Uh, It's the Psalm that David used to confound and confront the uh, Pharisees in Matthew 22, 24, uh, 44, Matthew 22, 44. Um, then of course it reminds us also of Daniel seven, when God gives dominion who, uh, is to one who is like the son of man and the whole first chapter of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the new Testament, which pulls from second Samuel seven, Deuteronomy 32, five different Psalms, which includes Psalms 110. And Jesus is not enthroned in place of God. He's enthroned alongside of God. He does not become king of heaven and earth because God is dead. He becomes king with, in conjunction, and co-rules with God. And I think that David's response of joy, of celebration, of this display of honor to his son is a revelation of God's heart when his son is on the throne. And I think we cannot stress that enough. And I know there's a school of thought out there that talks about the eternal submission of the son. Guys, you can't support that biblically. It leads to so many theological different, uh, difficulties and problems where Jesus is not equal to God. Jesus is not of the same nature and stature of God, which totally violates everything we've ever been taught about the Trinity. Because Jesus and God are one, along with the Holy Spirit. They are not three different beings. They're not three different gods. They are one. And so um, I truly believe that the reason why this becomes such a big issue within churches is because this teaching of the eternal submission of the Son is what is being used to promote subjugation of certain populations within the church, specifically women within marriage. Continue, Nathan. <laughs> oh, no, that, I, I was basically just going to say that, that it, yeah, you're, you're going to say, I, I, you're going to say certain populations, like, no, this is actually being used <laughs> to support uh, mistreatment of women in marriage. Yeah. And uh, there's, there's, you know, people can say, oh, well, that's not what it teaches. That might not be what you teach or you think it teaches, but there are people who are interpreting it that way and using it as a license to mistreat their spouses. And you cannot say it does not happen, and you cannot say that it's a very fringe or very limited group. It's mm-hmm. happening, and mm-hmm. the, the evidence is overwhelming. Um, so uh, uh, we can go into that on another episode. I think we did talk about some of that in the divorce episode, if you want to go see episode two. If you want someone who's more up-to-date on the statistics and more uh, data-driven, go check out Sheila Ray Gregoire. 
uh, to Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. Um, or just the go check out The Great Sex Rescue. Yeah, The Great Sex Rescue. Go check out her blog. There's plenty of information there. And uh, she doesn't go so much into the ESS uh, stuff, but there are some other podcasts who do. Um, she de- and even if she doesn't specifically address the ESS stuff, a lot of the teachings about marriage that are coming out of that worldview, she does address those, and mm-hmm. she does talk about how we need to uh, be doing better as a church to not let our uh, to not let our uh, theology be something that can be that can be used as an excuse to uh, excuse abusers. Um, mm-hmm. But that's yeah and, one of our big pet we... peeves here is <laughs> is knowing that there are uh, places who endorse these kinds of theologies and places that endorse uh, teachings that that do uh, perpetuate abuse in marriages. Well, and we did also talk about that with our Amy Bird interview too, and she discusses that in oh, right, her right. book "Recovering from Biblical Man uh, Womanhood." How could I even um, forget that? Because we actually had her on the show. Exactly, and I read and I read the book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and so, and but that's the thing. This has become like one of the pet theologies of people who use um, use their theology as a way to subjugate women incorrectly and wrongly, and like it's just it's just bad theology because they have to denigrate Christ to get there and they have to deny God's love and celebration for his own son to get there and so you know to have this truly united partnership on display within the trinity is something that should make us understand the value and worth of relationships in general marriage specifically and to understand that within a healthy relationship, you don't have to subjugate either party. You know, you can operate as equals and you can actually have a functioning relationship without this kind of um, toxic to- toxicity. Sorry. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to get too deep into this teaching, but I want to point out how when you do know the narrative, and I know I'm repeating myself, but this is so important, when you know the narratives that explain how this works, that give you a microcosm, that give you a tiny glimpse of what it is beyond just a, a simple statement that might be recorded in the New Testament, now the, the layers and the nuance and, and the application starts to become transparent. And it's one of the reasons why I really, really like um, the rabbinic principle that says no law would be enacted from the Torah without two narratives to explain it. And, you know, that obviously is not from the Bible, and I don't think we have to hold to that in any kind of hard and firm way. But I do think that what it does, it, it provides us with a good principle to go back to those narratives and look for the application and look for, um, you know, examples of how this stuff should play out in real life or, you know, in the world around us, maybe is a better way to say it. So I see you looking at your knob or you, uh, the volume knob. Are you wanting to say something? <laughs> no, I was actually, I was not looking at the, the volume knob <laughs> specifically. I was just looking at, uh, just looking around. I'm, oh, okay. <laughs> my brain's still not fully, uh, back up to par, uh, <laughs> <laughs> after last week I, uh, two well, so- two and a half days of fever 35 twilight zone episodes i mean <laughs> who knows where i am right now isn't that like the equivalent of like two and a half blunts i mean, I, I don't know <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you i don't know what the conversion between blunts and classic twilight zone is um it's almost like second a second hand high I mean, <laughs> so- it really i mean it really was, uh, it, it was nice to have an excuse to sit down and watch some of those. I haven't, hadn't seen them in, in forever. Uh, but I, I will say I, I would much rather, given the options, I would much rather have full work days of not being fevered on the couch in the studio. Yeah, absolutely. So. There's Dumplin' announcing his present. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about uh, your future career aspirations for that rooster. <laughs> Yes. Anyway, he's um, mean. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. We are so way off be- track. Let's <laughs> let's move on. Verse forty-eight, and the king also said, "Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day. My own eyes seen it." 
So David doesn't rejoice that Solomon will be king. He is rejoicing that he sees Solomon on the throne. I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than this, that there needs to be some, uh, some correlation in our thinking that if an earthly father can rejoice because his son now shares the throne and this position of king with him, surely God the Father is capable of so much more. Verse 49, then all the guests of Adonia trembled and rose, and each one went his own way. So everyone hears the, room, uh, hears the news, they realize they picked the wrong size, and they scattered. Sure, you know, uh, as far as we know, uh, Adonia has a priest and a general. He had Abathar and Joab, but he doesn't have a prophet. He doesn't have mighty men, and none of David's support. Worse, everyone who did support him, just leaves as soon as they hear there's some actual real opposition. So verse 50, Adonia trembled and rose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. So Exodus 27 gives us a description of how an altar for the Lord should be constructed. And it says in verse one, it says, you shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and the height shall be three cubits. Verse 2, and you shall make horns for it on the four corners. Its horn shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. So this design was actually the shape was pretty common in the ancient Near East. This is kind of what everyone understood that an altar should look like. Um, We still have examples of stone altars built on the same pattern that archaeologists have discovered, uh, you know, the wooden ones have rotted, the bronze ones have uh, been remelted and repurposed a lot of times or corroded away, but the, the stone ones have survived. And essentially, they are this square, this box that has like little pyramids on each corner that stick up, presumably um, to, you know, help keep things contained within the altar or, you know, maybe just for decoration, we aren't sure. Um, this, this altar that's being referred to is probably the one that David built after the census, whenever he saw the angel coming towards Jerusalem and God relented and let uh, Israel be, or Jerusalem be spared. Uh, now, why Adonia goes there and grabs the horns of the altar is kind of uh, unclear. This is not something that's commonly practiced. Uh, some of the commentators, both rabbinic and um, modern, think that maybe he's invoking a law that's found in Exodus 21 verses 12 through 14. And it says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then he will appoint for you a place in which you may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Now, the problem with, with this is that Adonia didn't actually kill anyone. And so the solution is that most people come down to is basically the altar is a safe place that he can go there and find sanctuary. I mean, we still have the concept now that churches are sanctuaries, that they're, they're safe places for people to go to. And, um, you know, okay, I, I, I kind of get it. But I have to wonder, uh, and I, I have absolutely no biblical proof for this, and so I want to make that clear. I, I have to wonder if there's something else going on here, because honestly, the Exodus thing seems just to be like a little bit of a stretch to me. Um, when Jonathan comes with the news, Adonia assumes that it's going to be good news. The only good news that he could really receive at this point is that David's dead. and so. Uh, you know, if Jonathan is coming with good news that David is dead and Adonia can take the, the throne, then, you know, you would think that this is not really a great son. And uh, sorry, I'm a little, <laughs> got a little distracted. Um, you know, good news for Adonia is not going to be David suddenly got, got better. Uh, so he needed David dead so he could enact his plans. And in many cultures, so many cultures, um, basically just speaking of a king's death, not even like wishing them dead or plotting to kill them, just speaking of the king's death is enough to uh, be punishable by execution. 
and you don't apply that the king is in any way mortal. And so the idea that Adonia was actually planning, making plans for David's death could be enough to condemn him to death. And so I have to wonder if that's not part of what's going on. And another thing that I have to wonder um, if what's happening here is that uh, the fact that he didn't invite Solomon if and Nathan the prophet was worried for Solomon and Bathsheba's safety, if the fact that he had planned on killing Solomon, who is now king, was enough to condemn him to death. So we don't really have uh, a lot of um, a lot of uh, information is what I'm trying to say. So any information, any explanation we come up with is going to have to be speculation. So verse 51, then it was told to Solomon, behold, Adonia fears King Solomon for <laughs> and for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar saying, let Sol King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. So he's doing the right thing. He's saying, hey, I, I acknowledge Solomon's king. I'm not even making claim to that anymore. I'm just going to let it go. He's saying that he's going to be Solomon's servant. Uh, he's saying that Solomon has every right to put him to death because as king, he could put to death whoever he wanted to. And, you know, he's saying Solomon is going to determine his fate. But he's hoping to extract an oath from Solomon that would protect his life in perpetuity. You know, never going to kill me. I'm going to live peacefully. Solomon's going to let me... Um, continue about my way without challenging it. And this is where we first get a glimpse of how smart and how wise Solomon is. Verse 52, and Solomon says, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So um, this is the first time in all the books and all of the chapters and verses that Solomon speaks. He has not said any words up until this point. Up until this point, everyone has spoken on his behalf. Everyone's made plans for him. Everyone has acted um, for him. He's been the, the one who has just kind of been at the mercy of what everyone else is doing. Finally, now we see he has a mind and a will of his own, and he's not going to be trapped by Adonia's tactics. He is not going to make an oath swearing to preserve Adonia's life no matter what, he's going to leave conditions and stipulations in, um, in place. And so basically, you need to be worthy. Now, the word here for worthy is kagil. This is um, the one that's often translated as valiant or valor. And it's the word that God uses when speaking of Gideon, you know, man of valor. And which is funny, you know, We've talked about it before, Gideon hiding in a wine press trying to winnow his wheat. Um, and now we've got Adonia, who is clinging to the horns of the altar, trembling in fear of his life. And Solomon's saying, you need to be a man of valor. And so you have these kind of opposites um, being shown where the words for descriptions don't match the actions. Sure. And another thing, uh, yeah, I think, like you mentioned, that this for the first time Solomon speaks is we see that Solomon doesn't actually make any moves here until after he's king, where you have mm -hmm. a lot of trouble being stirred up with David's sons presuming to take things over. And so mm -hmm. that's where uh, I think that's also some kind of important point there. I don't know if you've got anything on that. But... I, I hadn't really gone into that other than, you know, the, the fact that it is contrasted with Absalom, who tries to take over Adonia, who, who tries to take the, the throne. And so, and Amnon, of course, who just completely blatantly disregarded um, any rule or law, not just David's rule or law, but any rule or law in, in Torah. And so, you know, well, you've got this one kid who's willing to wait it out and wait and see what dad wants and do it at dad's time and, and to have faith that dad's going to follow through on his promises. That's that speaks to a whole new level of trust and faithfulness that, again, I think we see that mirrored within Jesus' relationship with God. You know, the timing, the, the methodology, and trusting God's plan 
and actively taking a part of his part in it as it is appropriate and not before then. So I, I, I think sometimes we don't always remember how I'm trying to think of the right word, the interdependence between God and Jesus and how they work together in this very perfect partnership that's hard for us to grasp as human beings because I've never had a perfect partnership on this earth. You know, even as much as I love my husband and even as much as we do operate well together. um, Well, and even even that language of perfect partnership is lacking uh, for mm -hmm. what is involved in, in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Right. I mean, there's we we can try as hard as we can, but we're not going to get there. Well, and and that's the thing. Our and our language is going to be lacking, and if our language is lacking, how much more is our understanding and our actions lacking in in trying to comprehend this? And so, when we see these pictures in the Old Testament, we start to realize just how amazing it is because the the stories let us participate. They let us uh, feel like we're a part of the process, and we can imagine how we would feel if we were in this moment. We can think about what we would do if this was the circumstances presented to us. And so we can participate in these truths in kind of these little intelligent, intelligible, bite-sized pieces, and then we can extrapolate from there uh, more of a sense of the, the infinity of what's going on within heaven. Not that we're ever going to completely grasp it, but we can kind of get that hint. And so if the hint is this impressive, you can only imagine what the reality, or you can't imagine, but you can start to try to imagine what the reality really is. And, you know, I think that's one of the things I really have an issue with, with our, the way we do Christianity today is the awe is gone. The, the, that sense of how just the splendor, the glory, the, the uh, truly awesomeness, not you know the, the flippant awesomeness that we talk about in day-to-day -day vocabulary, but truly awesome God is. And when you lack that, then you, you kind of lose the motivation that you need to, to totally submit and surrender your life to what he would have of us. And when you can restore that sense of this is how good and holy and righteous God is, and this is how loved I am by this this God who loves someone who is completely unworthy, then then you can begin to be moved to that place where worship isn't a burden. It's actually a joy and a privilege to be able to participate in it as a human being. And, you know, it, it's just I don't know. We we've got this idea that that some reason it that trying to be obedient to God it, it is a hardship, and it it I don't think I don't think that's an appropriate uh, perspective at all. So anyway, verse fifty three. So King Solomon sent, and he brought him down from the altar, and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, "Go to your house." So Solomon doesn't even want this guy hanging out around the royal courts or palace. He, he wants him just out of the house. And you got to remember at, that at this point, the royal courts and the city as a whole, they're celebrating Solomon's coronation. And you have to think that, you know, this is probably a major feast that was being thrown together and that there's, you know, lavish foods and there's lots of wine and there's singing and there's dancing. And so Adonia is not even allowed to stick around to the, for the party. But why should he? I mean, Adonia didn't invite Solomon to his feast. And so now Solomon says, you're going to be excluded from mine. Now, the chapter concludes, uh, we think that we kind of lay the um, matter of Adonia aside so we can hear uh, David's final instructions to his son as they're presented. But we're going to pick up with Adonia later. He's going to show back up. Now, chapter two shifts our focus back to David. Um, we've had this one kind of um, very insightful moment with Solomon where we see his wisdom. And we also see that he's going to be very firm, that he's not going to be a pushover as a king, but he's not going to be unfair either. And so 
David has some more things to share with his son, and this is really the last, um, well, it's the only speech really between David and Solomon within Samuel and Kings, whereas in Chronicles, we do have these longer narratives and dialogues that go on between the two. And um, he basically takes what we read in 2 Samuel, that final psalm and his last words, and he boils it down into just a few verses. And he says, look, the only reason why I've got so far is because I have honored God's law. If you want to be as successful as I am, this is what you need to do. And it's not because you're going to buy God off, but because God is merciful and God is loving and he will show himself merciful and loving. Remember, for those who are merciful, you show yourself merciful. Uh, This is how it's going to work out. And so this is what you need to do. So verse one said, when David's time drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go, but go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as is written in the law, the law of Moses, and that you may prosper in all that you do and what it, wherever you turn. Verse 4, And the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way and to walk before me in faithfulness with all their hearts and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So. David's referring back to that covenant that God made with him in 2 Samuel 7, and where God lays out the parameters of how the covenant will be enacted. Now, there are a few things in here I want to point out. One is um, kind of tangential to the, to the passage overall, but it is a really good example of how this phrase, law of Moses, is used. It's an idiom, okay? It Basically, the law of Moses is used to refer to the Torah. And for those who haven't been with us, Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You have it in your Bible. It is God's words. It's not something crazy that the Jewish people, you know, whipped up in order to confuse the Christians. It's right there in your Bible. So I know a lot of people are always asking, you ever read the Torah? It still cracks me up. I'm like, yeah. And David's made it very clear here that the statutes, commandments, rules, and testimonies within the Torah, within the law of Moses, belong to God. They are not something that Moses made up. They're not something Moses wrote out apart from God. They are Moses telling the people what God told him. The reason why Moses' name is attached to it is because Moses is the means through which God's words were transmitted. These are not Moses' words. Moses just played a part in getting God's words here. I don't know how to be any clearer than that. The reason why this is so important is because, for some reason, people like to say there is a difference between Moses' words and God's words. And they want to say that Moses wrote things in the law that God did not intend to include in the law. Now. I think most of our listeners will realize that's a really dumb thing to believe because it is. I, I, I don't know how much explanation you need for that. And the reason why they say this is in Matthew 5 and in Mark 10, Jesus is talking about divorce with the Pharisees. And um, Jesus makes a reference to Moses as and he says, what did Moses command you? And so a lot of people will say, see, Jesus is showing that Moses is the one who allowed for a divorce, not God. And why would he refer back to Moses if it wasn't to show that Moses was the one who did this horrible thing by letting people sin by getting a divorce? Now, um, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> one of my pet peeves, too, is, uh, Putting, putting things out there, saying things are sinful when it's like, hey, you know, no, there's this provision for this thing to happen in mm-hmm. the Torah. And yeah. God doesn't make like, you know, if you're going to sin, here's how to, you know, here's how to <laughs> right. do it legally, quote unquote, by the laws. You know, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. So anyway, that's... Uh, and Moses didn't slip this in because God, you know, was looking the other way. Right, you, right. You know, it, it, and you can't say... That crafty that, Moses oh, fella. 
Well, and what's funny is the people who often say this are the very ones who will tell you there's no errors in the Bible. There's no contradictions in the Bible, that everything is divinely inspired and you have to believe every word that the Bible says. Right. And, and which I'm not saying that's, you know, we won't talk about how right or wrong that view is. Um, I think we've just demonstrated our view on inerrancy as presented by some people on the show. But you cannot make those statements on one hand and then turn around and say that the Torah is flawed by allowing divorce on the other hand. That it just doesn't work. Right. Jesus, Jesus isn't saying Moses wrote this and God didn't intend it. He's saying the Torah is the gold standard by which everything is measured within Judaism. The Torah is God's revealed word. And so it, when all the commentary all the commentaries and all the teachings start to get muddied and start conflicting like they were in Jesus' day, particularly between the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel on the matter of divorce, Mm -hmm. then you strip back all the commentary. You strip back all the teachings. You get back to God's word, and you read what he said. And that's where you start. And so that's the reason why I wanted to bring that up is because here even David affirms the law of Moses is God's law. Right. So. I know it doesn't seem to have much to do with the overall um, passage, but I think it's an important point to make. The second thing that I want to point out is his second Samuel, the covenant isn't conditional. When you go to second Samuel seven, God says, this is what I'm going to do. Your son's going to be my son. I'm going to establish your throne there. There's no, um, there's no if then in this. And we're going to talk about what the if then is later. But God specifically said my, that his steadfast love will not depart from David's son. And so if you go back through first, uh, 2 Samuel 7 and read that, you will see that the, there's, like I said, no conditions. Here, David presents it with the if-then formula. He says, if your sons pay close attention, if they walk before me, you know, it, there's this whole list. And he says, then that you will not lack for a man on Israel. Now, the word then is missing in the ESV. It's implied. I think anybody who's familiar with reading understands that. Um, But most of the time when we do have prophecy in the Old Testament or even the New Testament, it's with a if-then formula. Uh, we, We see it over and over. If you follow my ways, if you do what you know is good, then I will bless you. If you disobey me, you rebel against me, you say that I'm not worthy of your honor, then there's going to be curses. There's going to be punishment. Now, initially, the promise in 2 Samuel 7, uh, according to Chronicles, as it applies to 2 Samuel 7, Solomon is the son that God has loved from birth, and he's the one who built, who's going to build the temple. That, that's what Second uh, Samuel 7 is about. It's about Solomon and God's promises to him specifically, not any other son. Now, um, if you know anything about prophecy, one of the things that you know is that prophecy is often fulfilled in crazy, weird ways that we didn't expect, because God likes to do the unexpected. So. Um, now, because it does seem contradictory, again, people have said that this is a problem. And you know, obviously, I don't think that this is a problem. Now, I think the answer to this is found in a very small, subtle clue in David's word. Because David is speaking of sons, plural, versus son, singular. And so, out of the 13 times we find this particular form of the word sons, it always refers to a collective. Uh, Genesis 8, 6.18, God uses this for his covenant with Noah and his sons. Uh, within um, Samuel, we find it used of Hophni and Phinehas together. As we move forward into the book of Kings, we'll see that David's warning to Solomon holds true that the sons of David are judged and rewarded or punished according to, or maybe discipline's a better word, but disciplined according to how they honor God's law. And so the kings who, who honor God, man, they prosper, they thrive, their nation's going to prosper and thrive under their leadership. 
However, the kings that defy God's law, who introduce idolatry, who hurt the prophets, um, God actually causes great discipline to come upon the entire nation. And eventually it's through this culmination of ungodly kings that causes the suspension of the Davidic monarchy. And it's not until Jesus returns and he reestablishes the Davidic claim to the throne, not only of Israel, but all the earth. And so that we see God's word being proven true again. But again, a specific chosen son, not sons in general. And so it's really interesting to me that what we wind up doing is we start saying, oh, well, this is going to be contradictory when we actually, I think what we have are two different scenarios being talked about. Second Samuel 7 is talking about Solomon specifically. David here is talking about the future generations going forward from Solomon. And so he is reminding Solomon that he falls under that umbrella. But of course, we know that Solomon is going to be somebody whose loyalties are always on the fence, that he's going to be struggling with where and how his loyalties are displayed. And so we're going to get into that as we get into Solomon's story further. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about this passage, because it does include that if-then formula, a lot of commentators have said these can't possibly be David's final words to Solomon. This is a new invention. It is something that we don't find until Deuteronomy. Now, as we move forward in the story of Kings, we find out that Deuteronomy is lost. When David's making this um, declaration to Solomon, when he's making the statement, they would not have had Deuteronomy as part of the canon at that point in time. So uh, basically, quick synopsis, they're cleaning out the temple and they find a scroll and they read it and they have to have it validated as actually being part of the Torah. And so then it's returned to the canonical status. It's returned to being part of the Torah, honored as part of the Torah, and enacted nationwide. Here's the problem with this kind of uh, thinking is basically if you're looking at the if-then formula, we can actually go all the way back to Genesis 18. And this is when God and Abraham are discussing the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when God says, if I can find X amount of righteous people, and we know they go through various numbers, then I will spare the city, um, the whole place for their, house, for their sake. So we have that if-then formula coming directly from the God, mouth of God as he's speaking in person to Abraham. I think I said Moses while ago. It's Abraham. Then we find it again in Genesis 20. And this is with Abraham and Abimelech. If you do not return her, speaking of Sarah, know then that you shall surely die. So this is God speaking to Abimelech. If then. Exodus fifteen twenty six. the Lord said, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandment and keep all his statutes, then I will put none of these diseases on you I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. So that sounds really similar to what we're hearing in second, in first Kings. There's a lot of the shared language, the shared idea. Do what God's told you to do in his law, and then you're going to be blessed. And so there's other passages. I mean, I just did a real quick search and pulled out some, you know, the earliest ones I could find. And then this one in Exodus that sounds so familiar. This if-then formula is found throughout the Torah. Yes, it's more common. It's used a lot more, many more times in Deuteronomy than any other place. And the point being is, even though that's true, it's not unique to Deuteronomy. We find it throughout the Old Testament. And I see no reason to suppose that if David's using this, that it was, you know, we don't have to think it was added later in order to make sense of it. It seems to be in total keeping with the vernacular and ways of talking about God and covenantal language that we found in the Torah. And David would have been familiar with this even without Deuteronomy. So I... I don't know. I think sometimes commentators really want to complicate things a lot more than they need to be complicated. Sometimes you can 
look at it and go, okay, this is, this really could be something David said. And I do believe that since that's what the Bible says, it's probably accurate. Um, so after David gives this, this speech, uh, the spiritual advice, he, he turns his attention to some more practical, um, mundane, tangible issues of running a kingdom. And, you know, we got to remember that during this time period, being a king usually required two things. One is total brute force. You had to be a bigger, badder warrior than anybody around you. You had to be able to command the respect and the allegiances of the best warriors in your country in order to build an army to maintain your rule. David and Saul were both kings because they had proven themselves in battle. A lot of the judges were respected. Why? Because they had proven themselves in battle. And so the idea of a king taking the throne without any kind of military background is really pretty radical for Israel itself. Like I said, other kingdoms were starting to do this. This had been going on for a while. But within Israel, this is a completely new thing. The other thing you needed in order to be a king is you needed to be shrewd. You needed to know how to play all the political games, keep everybody in line, pit the right people off of each other, make sure you kept your friends close, your enemies closer, that sort of thing. Solomon is now ascending to the throne, and he's going to need this kind of wisdom and guidance. Now, what makes this a very troubling passage is a lot of the commentary or a lot of the commentators believe that Solomon is actually 12 years old when this speech occurs. Now, there's other evidence to suggest that he is older. But what's, it's really just a disturbing picture when you think of him being 12 and the speech that follows. So, verse 5 says, Moreover, you also know that what Joab, the son of Zuriah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom were killed avenging the, who were killed avenging in the time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt and around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. So David singles out his general. Joab, who's been his right-hand man, he, he has been with David from the beginning when they were fleeing from Saul, hiding in the hills, all the way through so many battles. Joab's the one who, who uh, conquered Rabbah, who covered up for David with Bathsheba. He had Uriah killed. Um, David saying, to Solomon, this is somebody you have got to deal with. Notice what he doesn't do. He does not cite Joab's support of Donia. He does not uh, uh, cite the death of Absalom. Those two things are missing in this speech. Instead, he points to the killings of Abner and Amasa, two very concrete cases where Joab has broken the Torah. There's no doubt that in these two instances, no matter what else has gone on outside of these two instances, Joab has been worthy of death under God's law. And so, in case you slept, a little quick review. Second Samuel 3, Abner has supported Ishbosheth. This is Saul's son in the taking of the throne. Ishbosheth is basically Abner's political puppet at this point. But Abner's had enough of him. For whatever reason, he decides to join David. So he goes and he talks to David. David and Abner make an alliance. Joab hears about it. Joab's not real happy because just prior to this, Abner and Joab had fought. And Abner um, had run away, was trying to get away from Joab and his brothers. And one of Joab's brothers had run up on Abner. And Abner strikes him with the butt of the spear, not the sharp, sharp pointy end but the blunt end, and it kills Joab's brother. When Joab hears that David and Abner have made an alliance, he's livid. He goes to where Abner is in the gates of the city. He pulls him aside to have a conversation with him. And while they're getting ready to have what Abner presumes to be a conversation about the way things are going to be now, Joab kills him. You don't kill people by subterfuge, um, particularly in the, under the Torah, and you don't kill for revenge for something that happened during wartime, during a time of peace. 
if you're not at war, you don't get to, uh, you don't kill. And whenever someone has been killed in war, you don't get to avenge their murder. So, um, now in second, now Amasa is, his story happens in second Samuel 20 and Joab has been displaced. Uh, David is upset with Joab because Joab had defied David's direct order. He had killed David's son, Absalom, and he had put Absalom's former general in charge of his army. So Amasa has taken Joab's place and Joab hears about it. He goes out, he meets Amasa. He goes up to Amasa and he says, is it well with you, my brother? He makes this friendly greeting not revealing any kind of ill intent, but we know that he's rigged his sword for quick, easy access so that he can kill Amasa, and Amasa dies lying in his own blood, writhing on the ground. So there's no case of self-defense. There's no place of any kind of um, rightful death in this. This is something that the Torah clearly condemns on so many levels. And so, therefore, Joab is worthy of the death penalty. But here's my question that I have. Why is Abishai omitted from David's citation? Why doesn't David tell Solomon to take out Abishai too? Because if you go back to those two stories, Abishai, Joab's brother, is right there with him. And matter of fact, in 2 Samuel 3, it's very clear that Abishai and Joab killed Abner. So, and then when he kills Amasa, Abishai was leading a group of men. And instead of putting his brother in his place, Abishai joins with Joab to lead David's armies out against the rebellion of Shiva. So there's, you know, what's going on here? Why, why condemn one brother, but not the other? Now, I think the reason is, is that David's motivation is actually far more personal than um, righteous because uh, he had cursed Joab. When Joab had killed Abner, David said this, this is Second Samuel 3, 28 and 29. I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab upon his father's house and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or, is, or who is leprous or holds a spindle, or who falls by the sword, or lacks her bread. So basically, can Joab's whole house just needs to be miserable for the rest of their days. Now, David, however, never enacts any kind of immediate punishment on Joab. He never puts him in his place. The only thing he does is after Joab kills Absalom, he says, you aren't going to be my general anymore. Amas is going to be my, my uh, general. So. To say they have like uh, that David and Joab have a really complicated relationship is is an understatement because on one hand Joab is been responsible for some of David's greatest victories. I mean, he's helped he helped conquer Jerusalem, he helped conquer Rabbah, he has been just instrumental in getting the the remnants of the Rephaim out. And he's been the, the main guy that the mighty men have looked to for direction. Matter of fact, whenever um, uh, David was grieving Absalom's death, Joab says, I can take your army from you. I can lead a revolt with all of these armed men if you don't straighten it up. And so when David needed anything, Joab's the guy he he turned to. And this includes, even after the death of Absalom, Joab's the one who puts down Shiva's rebellion, which really could have led to the end of the, the kingdom. And so, you know, there's some really great things that Joab's done on David's behalf, but at the same time, Joab killed David's son. Now, I think that David basically saw an opening where legally, it was right for Joab to be executed politically. It was a smart thing to have Joab executed because he had supported the other son, Adonia. But I think ultimately those were just really good excuses to take out the guy who had murdered his son. And so um, 
we we really see that David's David's motivation maybe isn't so much about justice. It's more about vengeance. And so um, I think that we need to to be paying attention to kind of the subtext here because the only story where Joab kills someone that Abishai is not part of the equation is when Joab kills Absalom. And if it was truly about Abner and Amasa, you would think Abishai would have been included. There's now there's another reason why um, David could have wanted Joab killed. As of right now, as far as we know in the text, what's been specifically laid out, there are only four people on the face of the earth who know what really happens with David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba, obviously, Uriah, who's dead, and Joab. Joab is possibly and well, and Nathan the prophet. Sorry, so five. Um, so Nathan the prophet, but the um, it's very possible that David could have thought that Joab could have revealed the circumstances, the true circumstances about Solomon's parentage and cast a shadow of doubt on whether or not Solomon was a legitimate heir to the throne. I, I yeah, I see you reaching. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, if there is actually, I mean, at this point, is there anything really to say what is and what isn't a legitimate heir to the throne? Because like you pointed out, there's, there's not really been a, a solid formula. Well, and, and that's one of the issues of why this is kind of an iffy um, reason. I think it's worth exploring, and we're going to get into why it could play a factor in, in the, what happens next. But I think it's worth exploring, even though I do think it's kind of iffy, because it seems like Nathan the prophet called him out rather publicly. And also you've got Psalm 51. And so there seems to be at least some awareness. And also you got to remember in a, in a palace, in a royal household, nothing ever happens in a vacuum. It's not really true that they're the only people who know. They're just the only people named in scripture that know. We really don't know how many people uh, do know this. So, you know, I don't know. And plus, the the parentage uh, of Solomon, come on, we, this is one of the reasons why the first child of David and Bathsheba uh, probably died, why he was allowed to, to be taken, because that child, there really would have been some question on who the father was. And so I, I, I've got some issues with that. Now, um, Notice the next verse, in verse 6, you can almost hear David's wrath in this. And it's, he's tell, still talking to Solomon. He says, act therefore accordingly to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. David wants Joab to pay. This does not sound like just a politically smart move at this point. This sounds like vengeance, honestly. This sounds like a man who, who is really upset about what happened. And you know, you've got to remember, too, one of the patterns we've seen in David's life is he doesn't always address injustice and the, the breaking of Torah immediately. That's most notable with Amnon and Tamar. That's what led to the whole Absalom scenario, because he never punished his own son. He never disciplined his own son for what he did to his sister. And so that is something that David has had a problem with. When uh, Shimei had cursed David on the way out of town, he didn't say, you can't curse the king. you got to shut up and be quiet. He's like, let him talk. You know, God will sort it out. Um, so there's also the matter of, could David really have any credibility to discipline or punish Joab? Because Joab does know that David is every bit as much of a murderer as Joab is. Joab knew what David had commanded to happen to Uriah. And so, you know, what's Joab going to say whenever David tries to send hitmen after him or, you know, his own bodyguard to enact justice? You know, is he going to point out the fact that David has been equally guilty? Um, I think the answer for why David decides to act now 
is actually found in Second Samuel 3. And I want to go ahead and look at that real quick. Um, we're just going to do a quick drive-by because we'll get there in more depth later. Second Samuel, I'm sorry, not Second uh, <laughs> Samuel 3 we covered earlier. It's been a long week, guys. Second Samuel 3, 29, it says, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless. And his curse, and then he continues with his curse against Joab. Then in 2 Samuel 21, we find out that Saul had done something horrible to the Gibeonites. And we talked about what that may or may not be. But because the Gibeonites had been injured by the king of Israel, the king of Israel now had to deal with the consequences, even though it wasn't the same king that inflicted the harm and who's now dealing with the, the wrong. So we learn that, you know, in Saul's reign, something bad happened. David has to deal with the fallout. The fallout is at three years of famine. And I think basically he's, he's counseling Solomon to learn from his mistakes. Hey, kid, don't be like your dear old dad. Do the right thing. As a king, your job is to enact justice. And if, you're ju if justice is enacted, then you will continue to keep God's favor and mercy. And so even if the, the injustice, the wrong occurred under the previous administration. It's now your responsibility to address it. And I see this confirmed. This is where I thought I was going earlier. In 1 Kings 2.31, the king replied to him, talking to Benaniah, do as he says and strike him. This is, sorry, this is Solomon talking to Benaniah. Strike him, Joab down, and bur by, sorry, bury him. And thus take away from me and my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. So Solomon is saying here, whenever justice is enacted against Joab for what he did under David's reign, now the guilt is going to be removed from his own house and from David's house. And so I think what we're seeing here is, one, it's a politically smart move to make. Joab could really endanger Solomon's reign. He could uh, possibly even try to get the mighty men to support Adonia instead of Solomon. Two, there's that personal uh, reason in there with Absalom being killed by Joab. And three, there were real violations of the Torah by Joab, and they, the justice had to be enacted. And David's making sure that Solomon is being set up for success. How do we do that? By making sure everything is done by the book, everything's done right, even the stuff David left unaddressed. It now needs to be taken care of so that Solomon doesn't move forward with this cloud hanging over him. He's not going to be like David who had three years of famine with the Gibeonite situation. He can go in and enjoy. He can get the job done and not have to deal with the political um, fallout from before. So I think that's probably a good place to, to lay off of yeah. the, and we're going to be talking um, a little bit about Barzillai and um, we saw him briefly in David's story before and uh, next week. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a lot more uh, detail on this than I've ever heard. given. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really curious. I'm going to listen back to it again because there's a lot to absorb there. Um, well, it, yeah, it, it's, you know, I love going through this. It's a lot of slow going because you have to go back and double check. And I feel like we're kind of um, repeating some stuff that we've taught about in previous episodes. But also, if you're like me, you've slept since you listened to those episodes mm -hmm. or read those passages. But I, I want to show how important it is that none of the stuff happening with Solomon is happening in a vacuum. It is happening on the heels of David's life. And so everything that happened in David's life is impacting what's going to happen in Solomon's sure, reign. Sure. And so we need to remember that, that, you know, these people aren't functioning in a vacuum. So. Yeah. Anyhow. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I'm curious to see where things, uh, where things go uh, from here. I, and especially, I mean, Solomon has some interesting things in his life, but there's, to me, it seems like the, when you get into the other Kings, uh, there's, there's a, there's just some very interesting, weird stories. So I'm, um, uh, oh yeah, <laughs> but I, I am I am glad to hear a lot of stuff on this that that's making Solomon's uh, story a little more interesting. So, um, yeah. But that being said, uh, yeah, everyone, if, if, thanks for joining us. If you want to be part of the conversation, hit us up on Raven Creek SC uh, for all the social media, RavenCreekSC.com, and uh, look forward to seeing you next time. Hopefully, my voice will be a little bit better by then. <laughs> um, 
and my brain will be a little more together. Um, if, uh, in spite of everything that just happened, you still feel like you like <laughs> us and want to support us, hit us up on uh, patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. You can pass us a few bucks to uh, keep our uh, equipment upgraded and updated and keep shows coming to you with as few technical glitches as possible. And uh, that's, you know, if that's your thing. If not, thanks for uh, joining us. Just give us a like and a share, and we will see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.